Go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning, church, and open up to the 29th Psalm with me. Psalm 29. Let's just go to the Lord again for a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to have this day that you've set aside for us to get together as your people and to worship and uh, turn to your word and to sing together and to be encouraged and refreshed. And so, God, thank you for what this day means to us. Uh, Thank you for what we just sang about, the reminder that our lives uh, blossom and flourish like leaves on a tree and then we wither and perish but through all the changing seasons of our lives we come now to the God who never changes we come to the God who rules over the seasons and who rules over the years and who rules over the eras of time and Lord we bend our knees to you as our great God and Father we pray that through your word today we would see you more clearly and in light of who you are, I pray that the hearts of your people would be strengthened. And we pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Again, church, we're in Psalm 29 together this morning. We've been studying through the Psalms for several weeks now. We'll finish up this section at Psalm 32 here in just a few weeks. And um, every time we study the Psalms, I'm just reminded afresh of what a great gift from God the Psalms are to us. Uh, There's so much that God teaches us. The The Psalms are filled with rich theology, so we come to know God better as we study the Psalms. But it's important to remember that the Psalms aren't just written to teach us. And what I mean by that is, the Psalms are poetry, right? They're songs. And we don't just listen to songs to get information. Why do you listen to songs? They don't just relay information, but uh, songs also help affect and express emotions. And that's what the Psalms are written for. So there's wonderful content in the Psalms, that is true. But the Psalms are also designed to shape and affect our emotions. Listen to the way John Piper described the Psalms. He writes, of the Psalms, they're meant to move us, not just inform us. The Psalms touch on so many emotions. You can always find yourself in the Psalms. The Psalms, more intentionally than any book in the Bible, are designed to carry, express, and shape our emotions. That is a great description of the Psalms. The Psalms are given to us as a means to show us how to express our hearts to God. But there are also times where the Psalms help rein in our emotions. Because let's be honest, there are times in trials when my emotions start going in a very bad direction. And the Psalms help rein in the wrong emotions. And then on the other hand, the Psalms provide a channel that help guide me in the right emotions as I pour my heart out to God. And just speaking personally, I I can't tell you how helpful the Psalms have been to me. Even the last month or so studying through the Psalms how much I am personally helped by the Psalms. Because there are times in life where it feels like you are in knots on the inside. Have you ever been through a season of life like that where fear starts creeping in or you don't understand what God's doing, God's ways don't make any sense to you, and you're confused and you're worried and doubt starts swirling? And God has given us the Psalms. that They have a way of untangling those knots when you go through those times. The Psalms show you how to lay out your burden to God. For me, the Psalms serve as a sort of 
pressure release valve for my soul. When I'm struggling, I can find a psalm that helps me express whatever I'm struggling with before God. So let me just encourage you, church, use this book. Use the psalms. It will help your soul. Like John Piper said in that quote, learn to find yourself in the psalms. It is a gift from God. And the psalm that we're looking at this morning, it's got a little bit of a different flavor to it than the last couple of weeks. So if you think back, Psalm 27 is designed to help us express fear to God. That's what David writes about in the 27th Psalm. Well, then Psalm 28, David feels like he's surrounded by enemies. And in his mind, he feels like he's all alone. He's even in Psalm 28 wondering if maybe God has abandoned him. And so Psalm 27 and 28, David is pouring out burden and expressing emotion. But that's not really what's happening in Psalm 29. Psalm 29 isn't written so much to help express emotion that we're already feeling. Psalm 29 is written to help incite the proper emotions. In other words, the point of Psalm 29 is it, it's, the whole thing is designed to leave us standing slack-jawed beholding God. So as we read this in just a minute, you'll notice there are no requests, there are no petitions, none of, no pleas in Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is nothing but pure, unadulterated praise. It is a psalm that is meant to leave us standing in awe before God. And I think the ordering of the psalms is significant. Because again, I mentioned a second ago, the two psalms before this both have a, a lament element to them. Psalm 27 and 28 were both written from a position of angst and worry and weakness and fear. Well, do you know what I need in those seasons when I feel weak? I need to be reminded of how strong God is. That's Psalm 29. Do you know, do you know what I need in those seasons when life feels out of control? And, and by the way, it's not just that life feels out of control. Life is out of your control. We feel it sometimes, but the fact of the matter is, life is always out of our control. But when I go through seasons where, I, where I'm keenly aware that everything is out of my control, do you know what I need in those seasons? I need to be reminded that I serve a God who controls every square inch of this world. It is all under His absolute control. Well, that's what Psalm 29 is written for. And the way David is going to do that is he's going to describe a storm. He's going to describe a thunderstorm that, that forms out over the waters of the Mediterranean Sea and then it moves and makes landfall to the north of Israel up in Lebanon and then the storm is going to turn south and sweep across Israel until it finally pushes out into the wilderness of Kadesh. And so David, it's like he's in Jerusalem watching this storm form and move and he describes the storm for us in this psalm. And uh, folks who live in the balmy south as we move towards summertime, we understand what it is to watch storms roll in. We've seen the power of storms. We've witnessed it firsthand. We probably all have stories of property that was, there was a storm, in fact, that came through just a few months ago and went across the Thomas's farm and blew down a silo and ripped the roof off of buildings. We've seen the way that storms with their wind can lay forests to waste and the way the, the rains of a storm can make the streams overflow. We've seen the power 
of storms. Well, David here is going to describe the fierce power of a storm, a storm that we're reminded we can't control. What happens every year during hurricane season when we're told about the latest hurricane that's formed on the Atlantic and it's moving toward land? What do we do? Do we send out planes to make the storm turn? We can't control it. All we can do is it's a bad storm. They just tell the people who live in its path to run and hide, right? We can't control the power of a storm. But David's not just describing a storm for the sake of the storm. He wants us to know that there's something else going on. Every storm is telling us something about God. It's like God is speaking to us in the thunderstorms. He's showing us something of His majesty and His power. And we understand that God, our God who made the world, reveals Himself through the world. Right? God shows Himself through the world that He made. John Calvin said that all of the universe is a theater of God's glory. It's like the whole universe is a theater upon which God shows us who He is. And David's made that point in some of the other Psalms. In Psalm 8, David starts to think about the wisdom and majesty of God as he looks up at the stars in the night sky. In Psalm 19, David starts describing the greatness of God as he describes a sunrise that comes like a strong man out of his chamber, ready to run a race, David says in Psalm 19. So he's described the night sky. He's described the sunrise. But in Psalm 29, David's going to say that it would do us good to sit on our porch the next time a thunderstorm rolls through and to watch the rain and to listen to the thunder because it's like every thunderstorm is an invitation from God to know Him a little better. There's something that our great God is saying to us in the thunderstorm. In fact, that we're told that in the early church when there would be a big thunderstorm that they would often gather together the children when a scary thunderstorm would move through they would gather together the children and they would read this psalm. They would read the words of Psalm 29, this description of our God who rules and speaks in the storm. So let's read this together. If your Bible's open, we're in Psalm 29. We're going to read the psalm through in its entirety. Beginning in verse 1, this is a psalm written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David writes... Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a young calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. That's the lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. 
And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with strength. Now notice this. One of the ways that you emphasize something in Hebrew poetry is through repetition. So you can, you can always note what the author is trying to emphasize by what he repeats. It's what's getting repeated in this song. Well, two main things stand out. One is just the name of the Lord. God's name is mentioned 18 times in these short 11 verses. And you know by now, when you see the word Lord in your Bible, that word Lord in all caps, it's letting you know that it's translating what's called the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, it's for the, God's name in Hebrews, four letters. They don't use vowels. It's Y-H-W-H. That's God's name in the Hebrew Bible. Yahweh. And in many of our English translations, it's translated as Lord. Yahweh is the name God identified himself by. Yahweh is the God who created the universe. He's the God who speaks to his people. Okay, so primarily this psalm is about Yahweh. It's about the Lord. But then there's another phrase that keeps getting repeated in this psalm, especially in those middle verses. Did you notice it? It's that phrase, the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord keeps getting repeated like a drumbeat seven times in the middle verses of this psalm. So this psalm isn't just about Yahweh, it's about the glory of Yahweh that's revealed in his voice. This is a God who speaks and his words are like thunder. So David is describing the powerful voice of God. And so with that in place, we're going to work through this psalm under three headings this morning. Here's the first one. In verses 1 and 2, I want to see the call before the storm. The call before the storm. Look at how, how he begins this again in verses 1 and 2. It's a call to worship. Given to the Lord, O you mighty ones. Given to the Lord glory and strength. Given to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of of holiness. It's a, it's a call to worship, but there's something unusual about that call, of, call to worship. Who is it directed at? Who is being called to worship God there? Did you notice it in verse 1? Given to the Lord, O you mighty ones. That, that's a phrase that is usually used in the Bible. It's a title that is given to angels in the Bible. You get a very similar phrase in a later psalm. Listen to Psalm 89 verse 6. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty? That's the similar phrase, sons of the mighty, the mighty ones. Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? These sons of the mighty, these mighty ones, we're told are in heaven with the Lord, but they don't even compare to the Lord. Okay, so when you get descriptions of angels in the Bible, they're always described as splendid, bright, radiant creatures. But the psalmist is saying in that, in that verse that next to God, those angels are like flashlights next to the noonday sun. But what David is doing here is he is calling the angels in heaven to worship God. And what seems to happen is that as David starts thinking about the greatness of God as a weak 
finite earthly creature, his praise feels inadequate. And so what David begins to do is he begins calling for the angels around the throne of God to praise God with him. Seems kind of strange to us to call for a human being to call on angels to worship God. But we do that sometimes still. Have, have you ever paid attention to some of the songs we sing? For instance, how, how is the doxology worded? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. But then what's the next part of the doxology? Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. What are we saying in the doxology? We're calling for the angels above around the throne to praise God with us. And what is it that David calls on these angels to give or to ascribe to God? He calls them to give, them, give him glory and strength. In fact, David says, give him the glory due his name. That word glory is the Hebrew word kabod. It's a word that really has to do with weight. It's a word that talks about the weightiness of God. And we still talk that way sometimes. You might talk about a person who carries a lot of weight and what do you mean by that? Well, you mean they're significant. That's someone, someone with an elevated reputation, someone who has a lot of status. Well, the, the psalmist wants us to know that God is the most significant one. God's the one who carries the most weight. God's glory, is His weightiness is put on display. What does he mean when he says, give God glory? Well, he's not saying give God glory as if we somehow add to God's glory, like God is lacking glory and we have to add to it. Give God glory in the Bible just means recognize it. Pay attention to God's glory. Sing about His glory. Point to God's glory. Exalt in God's glory. That's what he means when he says give Him strength. He's not saying that God lacks strength and we somehow flex our muscles and add to it. When the psalmist says give God, give God strength, he's saying Pay attention to it. Recognize the strength of God. Praise God for His strength. Listen, we're talking about a God who has the strength, Ephesians 1 says. He has the strength to do all His holy will. The psalmist in Psalm 115, it's one of my favorite little passages in Psalms. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. You talk about strength. I don't have the strength to do 10% of the things I want to do. I don't have the strength to fulfill 5% of my will. But David is saying, we serve a God who has the strength to do anything he wants to do. His strength is unlimited. And so David is saying, recognize his strength. Praise him for his strength. And he adds... Worship the Lord. Worship, by the way, is the idea of bow down before. Bow down before the Lord in the beauty of holiness. He is holy and He is beautiful. That should make you think back to Psalm 27. Do you remember just a few weeks ago in Psalm 27 where David said, there's just one thing I desire, there's just one thing I ask of the Lord. Do you remember what it is? David says, I just want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, David says, to behold the beauty of the Lord. God is 
beautiful. God is the height of virtue and purity and wonder. And if you notice that God hardwired us so that we look for and enjoy beautiful things. When you go on vacation during the summer, where do you go? Do you go out into the middle of the Mojave Desert to stare at brown sand all the, the whole week? Do you go into a cave for the week? Where do people go for vacation? Well, they go to the beach maybe to look at the ocean and to watch the sunrise and set. Or maybe you go to the mountains in the fall and watch the leaves change colors or take a cruise in Alaska to look at the majestic land all around you. Why do we do that? We long to see beauty. Well, all of that is just giving you a faint glimpse of the beauty you were designed for. All of that's just an echo in our hearts that we were designed to delight in the beauty of God. And so David is calling the angels around the throne to recognize the glory and the strength of God and to give God the praise due His name. That's the call before the storm. Secondly, I want to see the power of the storm. So what's going to happen now is the scene is going to shift from earth to heaven. So he's been describing the angels around the throne giving glory to God. And now David's going to say that great God acts in His creation. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, or excuse me, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Do you see how the voice of the Lord is the drumbeat of this section? Why is that? Well, think about it. How does a king actually exercise his rule? How does the king show his authority? Does a king just sit silently on his throne? No, kings give commands. Kings issue decrees. That's how a king actually exercises his rule. I mean, we see this in our own country, right? We elect a president, and then how does that president actually exercise the power of his office? Well, in part, he exercises the power of his office by the orders that he gives. He can sign an executive order. And just by writing it out and signing his name, he can turn the whole force of the federal government. That executive order comes with the power of law, right? And so kings, presidents, exer exercise their authority and show their rule by the words they speak and the words they write. And you learn about the character of a leader and the power of a leader by those words. Weak leaders don't have the power to carry out what they command. Evil leaders issue evil commands. But what David's doing here is he's encouraging us to marvel at God's glory by beholding the power of his voice. David is saying God speaks and when God speaks it's done. This is not some weak king who gives an edict and crosses his fingers and hopes it's obeyed. This is the king who gives an order and it's finished. He spoke the world into existence. This is the king who spoke and called Lazarus out of a tomb. This, this is a voice that calls our dead hearts back to life. And it's his voice that controls the storm. 
And so David begins describing this storm forming. He keeps using the word waters, many waters. It seems like he's describing the storm, remember, just west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. And he's describing a storm that's beginning to brew over the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. And how did people in David's day view the oceans? Well, they were generally terrified of them. The, the Israelites were not much of a seafaring people. And they, they tended to fear the seas because it was so unpredictable and so powerful. The, the best ships they could build could be ripped apart in minutes by a ferocious storm at sea. But David here is describing the God who rules over those storms. His voice is the voice that causes storm clouds to gather together. And every time the thunder rumbles, it's like it's an echo of the voice of God. That's why as you read through your Bible, and when there are those occasions in the Old Testament where God actually audibly speaks to His people, how do, how do they usually describe God's voice? It's like the only thing they even know to compare it to is thunder. So when God meets with Israel at Mount Sinai and speaks to Israel at Sinai, how do they describe God's voice? All they know to say is that it sounded like thunder. When God speaks to Job during that trial that he goes through, how does Job describe God's voice? He describes it like thunder. It's powerful, it's majestic, and it's terrifying. It's like God speaks and the earth shakes. And I can't help reading about God's voice controlling the storm without my mind going to the Gospels. Because do you remember the story in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 4, where Jesus and the apostles get in a boat one evening and they're crossing over what they call the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not a, it's not an ocean. It's just a big freshwater lake. But the way the Sea of Galilee is positioned, storms could swoop in and churn the waters up. Well, as Jesus and the disciples are crossing over this lake, a storm moves in and the waters begin to churn and their boat begins to swamp. Water begins to fill the boat and it looks like they're going to sink. And where is Jesus at as this is going on? He's in the boat asleep. And so in a panic, they wake Jesus up and go, don't you care that we're going to die and what does Jesus do when he wakes up? He says, peace, be still. And what happens? The wind stops blowing, and the rain stops falling, and the water in an instant becomes smooth as glass. Do you see what we're being, we're being told? That there's the voice that controls the storm. That this is the God who not only forms the storm, this is the God who not only directs the storm as he wishes, but this is also the God who stops the storm when he wishes. So he forms the storm over the waters of the ocean. And then what does he say next? Look at verses 5 and 6. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Notice what's happening now. After forming over the waters, the storm is now making landfall. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. So now the storm makes landfall. And it makes landfall north of Israel in the area of Lebanon. 
And what that area was known for was its massive forest of cedar trees. If, if you came during our studies on Sunday night, in the early chapters of 1 Kings, as Solomon was building the temple, we're told there that most of the lumber for the temple came from the forest of Lebanon. And so the trees in Lebanon were massive. They could be 80 feet high. They could be 30 feet around. But David describes that as this storm makes landfall, these massive cedar trees begin to fall. They begin to splinter like toothpicks. Have you ever seen a tree snap in half during a storm? Several Christmases ago, we went up to my brother's house um, over the Christmas break and stayed with him for a few days, and it was really unseasonably warm. And so while we were there, these huge thunderstorms came through the area, and maybe 30 or 40 miles to the east, tornadoes came through. Well, a few days later, we were driving home, and on the way home, along the highway, we passed through the area where the tornado had, had come through. And it was like a 100-mile swath on both sides of the interstate that just cut across the forest where every tree in that whole area was just snapped in half. Like somebody had come through with a big chainsaw about head height and it just cut every tree in half. That's what David's describing. He's, he's describing the power of nature, right? No, he's describing the power of the God who rules over nature. At his voice, the wind blows, and at his voice, the cedars snap. And then did you notice how he mentions Lebanon and Syrian? He's describing two mountains in that region. There was Mount Lebanon and Mount Syrian, which is another name for Mount Hermon. And both of those mountains were huge. They stand about 10,000 feet above sea level, just massive pieces of rock. But David says that when this storm hits at the voice of the Lord, those mountains begin to bounce up and down. They begin to hop like a newborn calf. And he could be describing two things. One, have you ever, have you ever watched the trees on a mountain during a windstorm where the wind blows and all the trees kind of at once bow down and then pop back up and they bow down and pop back up? And David could be describing watching the wind hit those mountains as the trees bounce up and down. Or he could be describing the way those mountains shake every time there would be a clap of thunder. That those mighty, massive mountains, it's like they tremble like leaves at the voice of God. Those mountains have to dance to the beat of God's music as the thunder rumbles and the mountains quake. And it's interesting where David describes this storm as hitting. It doesn't hit Israel. It hits Lebanon just north of Israel. And again, you might remember from our first Kings studies that he's describing the area that one of the most evil queens in Israel's history had come from. This is the area that Queen Jezebel had come from. You remember her in your Bible? Do you remember what God Queen Jezebel and the people there worshipped? They worshipped the God Baal or Baal. And what was Baal the God of? Baal was the God of the storm. They believed they worshipped the storm God in Lebanon. In fact, they believed that their gods lived in the mountains of Lebanon. And you see how David is describing this storm that makes landfall. And it's like a slap in the face of their gods. God forms this storm over the waters. And then he sends this storm right across Baal's home turf. And Baal can't stop it because Baal doesn't exist. 
He's making the point that all the gods those pagans worship are figments of their imagination. It is Yahweh who rules over the storm. Then the further description of the storm in verses 7 through 9. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. That's to the south of Israel. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. So do you see how he's describing the lightning flashing across the sky? And then at the voice of the Lord, this storm that came ashore to the north of Israel has now moved south and it's moved all the way into the wilderness of Kadesh. And David says that as this storm moves, it lays the forest bare. It's such a ferocious storm that it sends all the animals into a panic. So that pregnant deer go into premature labor. Everything is terrified at the power of the storm. But then David turns our attention at the end of verse 9 to the, the highlight of the passage. He turns our attention to the temple. And he wants us to see how God's people respond. So as the storm sweeps across the nation of Israel, as the trees collapse and the ground shakes, how do God's people respond in light of all this? Well, David says, God's people in the temple shout glory. And what he's saying is, for those who know the Lord, we don't just see a storm. We don't just see lightning popping and hear thunder booming. We actually see and hear revelation of who God is. As we watch the storm, we see something of the greatness of God. We don't, we don't shake at the power of the storm. We shake at the power of God. And we join our voices to the voices of the angels in heaven. And David says, and we say glory. Church, do, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear what God is saying to us and what God is showing us in every thunderstorm. We're in that season of year where we experience thunderstorms just about weekly. And maybe this would be a good week, the next time a thunderstorm rolls through, to pull a chair out on your porch and to sit down and watch the storm. Feel, feel the porch beneath your feet shake every time there's a big boom of thunder. And watch the sheets of rain roll through. And watch the trees bend at the force of the wind. And watch the lightning crackle. And as you watch and as you listen, raise your hands and say, glory. David's saying this is the response of the people of God to the thunderstorm. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, writes about how much he loved watching thunderstorms. And how he viewed every thunderstorm he got to watch as an opportunity to praise God. Listen to Edwards' description. It's a long quote, but I like it. Listen to what Edwards writes. He writes, I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and in the day spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice, my contemplations of the Creator and Redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. 
Formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me. In other words, he used to be terrified of storms. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, if I may so speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. And while thus engaged, it always seemed natural for me to sing. Edwards recognized that God is speaking in every thunderstorm, and he wanted to make sure that he paid close attention. Well, that leads to the third part. Number three, I want to see the calm in the storm. The calm in the storm. Look at verse 10 where he writes, The Lord sat enthroned in the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. Do you see the word flood there in that verse? It's a very particular word. It's only used 12 or 13 times in the Bible. One of those times is here. But every other time that word flood is used, it's used in those early chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 through 11. Because what's being described in those chapters of Genesis? The flood that happened in the days of Noah. That's the word that he's using. So what's happening here is it's like David, as he watches this terrible storm roll through, as he sees the ferocity of his storm, his mind thinks back to a much more severe storm that had happened. Right, that there was a day when the fountains of the deep broke loose. There was a day when the water canopy around the earth was punctured and the, the whole earth was deluged in water. It, it had been the ultimate display of the power of God over nature. And can you imagine what it would have been like to have lived during that flood in Noah's day? It must have seemed like as the water poured and the lightning popped, it must have seemed like all of creation was going or coming unglued. But you see what David tells us about the flood? David says, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood. In other words, while the waters of the flood churned, God sat as king. He sat above the chaos, ruling over the chaos. He sat enthroned at the flood. But he doesn't end it there, does he? You notice how that first line of verse 10 is past tense? He sat enthroned at the flood. But the second part of verse 10 is not past tense, is it? He sat enthroned at the flood. And then he continues, he sits as king forever. Do you see the point that David's making? That, that the same God who sat enthroned during David's flood and the same God who sat enthroned at Noah's flood, that's the same God that sits enthroned in your flood. The God who ruled over the storm in David's day is the same God who rules over the storm today. So David is writing all of this for the benefit of Christians. It's like David is reminding us that as the storm clouds roll in, listen, the storm clouds will roll in. And he's reminding us that as the storm clouds begin to roll into your life, as the lightning begins to pop over your head, 
remember that you have a God who controls every drop of rain and He controls every gust of wind and He controls every crackle of lightning and He controls every boom of thunder and He is ordering every single part of it for His glory and for your good. He sat enthroned then and He sits enthroned today. And look at what he says in the last verse. This is such a great ending to this psalm about a storm. He writes, The Lord, Yahweh, will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Do you see why he's ending it this way? Yeah, God's in control, but storms are still hard, right? So how do we survive such brutal, ferocious storms? What's David's answer? The Lord will give strength to his people. Do you see what David's saying? It's like David is saying, as we give him glory, he gives us strength. And who is this promise for? The Lord gives strength to whom? Is this just a blanket, universal promise from God? No, David says the Lord gives strength to his people. This is a promise for those who belong to God by faith. This is a promise for those who have found refuge in Jesus. And the promise is we serve a God who doesn't just sit enthroned above the storm. We serve a God who actually comes to his people in the storm. We serve a God who actually gives his people strength in the middle of the storm. Which means for us... That as the people around us, the people who don't know God, shake like leaves. As they wilt under the fury of a storm. As God's people, God gives us strength and He gives us fortitude and He gives us courage so that we stand. So Christian, as the storms roll into your life, the storms will roll into your life. The encouragement here is... Keep your eyes on the one who sits enthroned above the storm. It is not accidental, this storm. It is not happenstance, this storm. It is not coincidental, this storm. The storms are governed by a sovereign God. And He not only governs the storm, He gives His people strength in the storm. So keep your eyes on God. Give Him glory and He promises that He will give you strength. That's the first part of verse 11. He strengthens us in the storm. And then what's the second part of verse 11? The Lord will bless His people with... What's the last word? Peace. Isn't it interesting that a psalm that is entirely about the power and fury of a storm, the last word of that psalm is the word peace. That's something that only God can do, right? And it's the promise that as God's people, as we go through ferocious storms, and listen, the, the trials and storms of life are not just petty thunderstorms. We go through storms that feel like they have hurricane-force winds. You'll face storms in life where you wonder if your faith can stand. You'll wonder if you can take another step in the storm. But David is giving the promise that if you will keep your eyes on the one who sits enthroned above the storm, if you'll give glory to the God who reigns over the storm, he will give you strength and he will give you a supernatural peace. 
So trust Him. Christian, don't lose heart. Don't buckle. Don't fall away. Don't abandon. Trust the God who rules the storm. Trust that He has a plan in the storm. Trust that He will give you strength and peace through the storm. But let me make sure I say this as we close. If you don't know this God, you have nothing but your own strength to rely on in the storm. And maybe you hear that and think, well, I'm strong enough. Well, let me assure you that there is a storm coming. Let me assure you that the Bible tells us the storm clouds of God's wrath are already gathering on the horizon. And one day you and I are going to stand before God and those clouds of judgment are going to open up. And we're going to face the fury of God's judgment for our sins against Him. Make sure you hear me. And if you don't know Christ, you will be swept away. You'll be consumed. You'll be ushered into eternal fury on that day. The only hope we have when the, the storm clouds of judgment open up on that day is that we would be sheltered in Jesus. Because it's at the cross, it's at the cross that Jesus hangs in the place of sinners. Get the vision of what's happening at the cross. As we're told at Calvary, the clouds go, go pitch dark as Jesus hangs there. What's happening at the cross it's like the storm clouds of God's judgment are opening up on Jesus as He hangs there in our place, bearing our sin. And the hope that the gospel gives us is that for everyone who runs to Jesus in faith, everyone who clings to Jesus and the work that He's done for us, we're sheltered from that judgment. That final furious storm we'll be protected from in Jesus. And listen... If your trust is in that Jesus, He also promises help in the storms today. He offers strength and He offers peace. So we're meant to read Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord thunders. The voice of the Lord drives the wind. The voice of the Lord makes the lightning flash. We're meant to read this psalm and be like the people in verse 9. We're God's people gathered together in His house and we're supposed to lift our voice and go, Glory! We're supposed to join in with the angels in heaven and give God the glory due His name.